Amen. Amen. So I'm going to call, uh, first I want to call to the podium um, this man named Matthew, and he's just going to share a brief word, and then he's going to yield to Brother Mark, who will then yield to Brother Luke, uh, and then he will yield to Brother John. Uh, Brother John. No, no, not, not that Mark. <laughs> you know, um, But Matthew's going to give us a premise. Uh, Mark is going to give us a, a, a brief uh, one or two sentence explanation. Luke is going to give us an example, and then John is going to tell us what it means to you and me. So um, let me uh, read. First of all, it's Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And uh, if, if you want to write them down, it's real brief. You can look them up later. Um, but just listen to what Matthew has to say. It says that Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And uh, Matthew steps down from the podium, um, giving us the premise that Jesus called uh, these men, um, and he called them to first follow him, um, but he called them to follow him with an intention, and that intention was to make them. And so it was a following with a purpose, and so to follow in order to make. And so as Mark now stands up. Mark says to us in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, um, it says that Jesus went up into a mountain and he called unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and then he ordained 12. So he appointed 12, it says, that they should first of all be with him, and then that he might send them forth to preach and to have power or to have authority, to have something delegated unto them, to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And so he calls 12. And so as Mark now um, gives us kind of a little bit more of an explanation to what Matthew first told us, he tells us that Jesus called these 12 uh, that they should follow him, but he gives us three more things. First, that they should be with him. Next, that they would have authority and that that authority was that they might preach, that they might uh, heal sicknesses, and that they might cast out devils. And so now we're getting a little bit fuller picture of what it is that he wants to make them. So he calls to follow in order to make, and that make is that he might delegate authority that there's something that we might do. Now Luke gives us a little bit more. So Luke comes to the podium in Luke chapter 9. And in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 1, it says that he called his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all devils to cure diseases, and then he sent them. So this goes a little further now as we get into the example. He sends them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So now it isn't just that he's imparted the authority uh, but they're not to do anything. Now he actually sends them out. They have a mission um, that they're, they're sent to now fulfill. Now look at chapter 10 of Luke. Same book, different chapter, long chapters in Luke. You might have to turn two pages. It says in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After these things the Lord appointed another 70 also, and he sent them two by two before his face into every 
city and place whither he himself would come. And so now he sends forth not just the 12, but he sends 70 more. And then just with your eyes, if you're looking at it, or just with your ears, if you're listening, in verse 17, it says this. It says that the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through your name. And he said unto them, Jesus now responding to them as they return. So they've given the report. They said, Lord, we went out. This is what we did. This is how it went. And Jesus gives them feedback in verse 18. He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power or authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding. So he tells them again, I've given you this authority. In this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so Jesus now, as they give him feedback, he then gives them instruction and perspective concerning where that authority comes from and why. And, you know, the details of what Jesus said aren't, aren't important at this point. Uh, maybe they will be at, at some point in a future study. For now, what I want you to see is the interaction that took place between Jesus and his follower leaders after they return on mission and as they're developing and who it is that Jesus has called them to be. Now, John gives us the application. Last verse, it's one verse, John 15. Okay, you say, what does all of this have to do with me? Jesus calling these guys to follow, giving them authority, sending them out, then having an interaction afterwards. What does it have to do with me? John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says this. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Okay, so now this hits you and I in that it wasn't just the 12 or the 70 that he called to follow and then appointed with authority and, and mission and then sent them out and then interacted with them. But this applies to us as well. And here's what I want you guys to think about this morning and consider, is that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is not calling us to follow him because he wants followers, a followership, but he calls us to him because he wants to raise us up to be leaders with him. So Jesus doesn't call followers, Jesus calls leaders. And Jesus calls people that he wants to raise up into the place of, of leading. He calls leaders and he knows how to make us what he calls us to be. And so you might even be sitting here this morning and you think, well, I'm not much of a leader. I never really have been. Or in some areas of my life, maybe I feel like I, uh, I am competent or equipped to lead. But in other areas of my life, I don't feel like much of a, a leader at all. But here's the thing is that if Jesus calls us to be something, then he knows how to make us what it is that he's called us to be. That's why Jesus said to Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. You know how to fish for fish. You're a great leader out here in, in, the, uh, in, in industry. But I'm going to teach you how to be a leader in a place and in a way that you've never led before or you didn't even think that you could lead before. And I know how to make that happen. And then the entire ministry of Jesus in these guys' lives was that of making them what they were not. Because when Jesus calls someone to follow, 
He wants to teach them to lead. That's what Jesus wants to do. And so what we're going to do over our next three sessions, today and then next week, and then whenever we get together again after that, <laughs> you know, because we're going to Philly and then uh, then Thanksgiving follows and all that. So, but, but the third one, what we're going to do this week is we're going to talk about four bad leaders, four bad characteristics of leadership that we don't want to emulate, but that come naturally, unfortunately. Uh, and then the following week, we're going to look at Jesus and how he is the opposite of all of those things. Jesus, the example of a good leader. Um, and then finally, the third week, we'll talk about the secrets of good leadership. Like what, what, is, what are the traits? How do we become the kind of leaders that God wants us to be uh, in every area of our life? How do we, how do we lead our, our flesh so that it's under and not, and not leading us? How do we lead our wives as husbands and men? How do we lead our families and our children? How do we lead an industry and our workplace and our business and, uh, and, and what it is that call, God's called us there? How do we lead in the church uh, as men to be examples for other men and for younger men? How do we lead in society to even people that don't see us, that we conduct ourselves uh, as God's leaders in this world? And so we're going to look at these things over it. And so today I want to talk about the four, um, the four things that you don't want to be as a leader, four bad leaders that as soon as I say who they are, you're going to say, oh yeah, I know that guy. Uh, in some ways, you'll say, I am that guy. I know with one of these, I have to say, I am that guy, <laughs> you know, because uh, they come kind of natural. And so if you're taking notes, the first kind of leader that you never want to be is the controlling leader, the controlling leader. Uh, we see it in the scripture uh, illustrated perfectly in the person of King Saul. Remember the first king of Israel. Um, he was the first one that God gave a crown to and said, you're going to lead my people. There was no preparation of his character. Uh, he just kind of one day was Saul and the next day he was King Saul. And it happened that quickly. And, in, and that's like kind of the recipe for a train wreck. So to one day just be Saul and the next day be King Saul. And, uh, and thus Saul was just a bad example from the very beginning. But there's three things that happened in Saul's life that show us exactly what the controlling leader is. Um, it, there's a scripture, and, and, and the, all of this happens in the early chapters of Samuel, but for brevity's sake, you can go find it. You know? but, uh, but it tells us there in, in 1 Samuel um, that, that the son of Saul, his son Jonathan, it says that he went out and he destroyed a whole troop of Philistines. He just went out in faith and he kills all these Philistines, and... And, and he wins this battle, just him and his armor batter, bat, uh, bearer. And they go and they kill all these Philistines. And it says after that battle, it says that Jonathan smote the garrison, but Saul blew the trumpet. In, in other words, Jonathan did the work, but Saul needed the credit. And one characteristic of a controlling leader is that they always need the credit for everything that happens as part of the reason why they control. A second um, characteristic of a controlling leader is that they need to feel, the controlling leader needs to feel like they're the most competent. Remember when King Saul and all of his troops had that, that uh, standoff with Goliath for 40 days? And no one had the courage, including the king, to go out and fight this Philistine, this champion. And then all of a sudden, David comes in, and he's just this youth with no experience, but he's got a heart full of faith, and he loves God, and he's uh, um, 
kind of inflamed with passion and anger when he hears Goliath ranting and the, and the whole thing. And he comes up to, to Saul and he says, why is this going on? I'll fight this guy. And, and Saul's response to David is he said, you can't. You can't. Because you are a child. And, and it didn't matter what David did have. He didn't even ask him what his strategy or his plan was. What Saul saw in him is he saw, well, you are not as competent as me. And so you can't because you are small and I am big. And one aspect of a controlling leader is that they've got to feel like they're the most competent. It's part of their leadership structure is that I'm leading because I can and therefore you can't. You must always be a little bit less than I am. And then the third aspect of a controlling leader is that they need things done their way. See, after Saul allowed David to go in, what did he say to him? He said, okay, I'll let you go fight. It's a free country, but wear my armor. If you're going to win, you're going to have to use my strategy, my method. You're going to have to do it the way that I would do it if I was the one that actually had the courage to do what you as a child are going to do. And so a controlling leader always needs the credit. They need to feel like they're the most competent and they need things done their way. Here's the problem with a controlling leader is that a controlling leader breeds compliant followers, a band of yes people, people that always do exactly what the leader says because they don't like the consequences otherwise. And, and what happens when you have a controlling leader is that the people that are following that leader become yes people and the followers will fall in line, but anyone with any capacity to lead will leave. They're going to leave because they can't operate. They can't thrive in that. And so you have a leader, and, and, and I'm not even saying that that's a bad person. The controlling leader isn't. They, they might care deeply about the cause, and they're highly engaged in what they're doing, but they lack trust, and thus it breeds dysfunction. And the organization or whatever it is, the team or the church, whatever it is, it gets weaker instead of stronger because the stronger people tend to leave. Now, the, the controlling leader is most prone to come out in us in the area of our life where we feel the most uh, um, uh, value or, or, or where the thing that's most important to us. I become controlling, I find in myself personally, in the areas of my life that are the most important to me, when the stakes are the highest, when this can't fail, or when I want things to go a certain way, that's when that comes out in me uh, in the area where I feel that, that this is the most important. The controlling leader breeds dysfunction. The second um, thing you don't want to be is the critical leader. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those in your life. A critical leader, the person that just criticizes everything that you do and they have a better way or they can tell you everything wrong with the way you did what you did. The Apostle Paul says this, Galatians 5 verse 15. He says this. He says, if you, talking to Christians, if you bite and devour one another, he said, take heed that you be not consumed one by another. If you bite and devour. If you criticize and poke at and pick away at and tear apart people, he says what's going to happen is you're going to be consumed. To be consumed means to be worn down, 
or worn out. You're going to wear people out if you're the type of leader that constantly criticizes what people do. The problem with the critical leader is that they create fear in people and they produce insecure followers, people that are afraid to take risks. They're afraid to step out and to be innovative and to try things because of fear over what their leader is going to do in response to it. And a critical leader will wear people down to the place where they just become uh, impotent. There's no power in them at all. Now, the reason someone's critical oftentimes is out of a heart of genuine care. And, And they believe that they're helping people improve by the criticism that they're giving. By pointing out faults, I'm helping you get better. The problem with that mentality is that pointing out faults constantly wears people down. The better way to do it is to tell people what they did right and then discuss ways that things could be done better next time. And that way you're affirming what people are doing. You're investing, uh, instilling the fact that you trust them, what they're doing, and then you're working with that person, leading them to do things in a more competent way next time. Uh, I find that this comes out in me, the critical leader, in the area where I am the, where I feel is the area of my expertise. You know, so the thing that, and we all have areas of expertise, right? Like I know certain things, like we're really good at in the kitchen, right? Like I know this is my area. And so that's where I have a tendency, you know, to be critical. If I'm really good at a particular sport and I'm coaching that, I, I have a tendency to be critical, you know, to point out the problems. You, that, what you did wrong there, what you did wrong there, what you did wrong there. You know, that's where that comes out the most. The third, uh, the third thing you don't want to be as a leader is the avoiding leader. The leader who tries not to get involved, you know, uh, and, and sometimes that, that's a good thing, you know, but it can be a bad thing if it's, it crosses into avoiding. In the scripture, we see a man named Eli in the Old Testament, and he was a priest. Again, in the early, early chapters of Samuel, Uh, In the days when Samuel was just born, Eli was the priest. And we're told of Eli, and he was the, the quintessential avoiding leader. It says that his sons... Uh, were reprobates. I mean, they turned sideways. They were skimming off the offerings that the people were giving. They were sleeping and seducing the women that were there, uh, that were coming. And it says that Eli knew about it, but it says that he did nothing about it. He did not reprove his sons. He just wanted the problem to take care of, of itself. And, and the outcome of it was really bad, both for the sons. The small problem became a huge problem, and it became a crisis for Eli and his family because he avoided the confrontation of dealing with the problem. And here's the problem is that uh, avoiding leaders create disengaged followers. People that perceive that this person doesn't care, and so I don't care. And we see how that played out in Eli's family. And over time, um, it, it becomes more of an issue. I find that dads, fathers, are especially prone to this type of leadership when it comes to dealing with their kids. I, I, I know, um, you know, probably 99%, it, maybe the number is a little bit smaller, but if it, if it is, it's like maybe 98%. 98, per, 98 or 99% of all of us in here 
had avoiding fathers. You know, they didn't know how to be a dad, and so the way they handled not knowing how to be a dad is that they just didn't be a dad, or they just worked extra hours and let mom deal with it because she seemed to know what she was doing. We'll hit mom in the next one, don't worry. You know, <laughs> but, but I know that that was for me. I, I, I mean, my dad, didn't, he didn't cheat on my mom. He wasn't a, a raging drunk. I mean, he worked hard. He did what he was supposed to do, but he didn't know how to be a dad. Uh, and, and probably the reason he didn't know how to be a dad because his dad probably didn't know how to be a dad. And so his thing was the avoiding. He did what he could. He, do what he did what he knew how to do. But most of the other times, he just avoided uh, being in that position. You know, and I, I find it to be something that I have to wrestle with. I'm, I'm an avoiding leader. This is the one that, that nailed me, is that I'll just ignore the problem, and I'm going to hide behind the fact that I'm not a controlling leader, and I'm letting people just figure it out. You know, but the problem with being an avoiding leader is that big problems come when small problems go unaddressed. And sometimes confrontation, it doesn't have to be negative confrontation, but even just a discussion uh, is absolutely necessary. What do you do when you're called to be something or do something, but you feel completely unequipped to do it? What do you do when you're called to be a dad, but you didn't have one and you don't know how to be one? And that's, a, that's a, a problem an avoiding leader has to confront first in themselves, is I have to lead, I don't know how to lead. You know, and we'll, we'll hit these things as we go in the next couple of weeks and we look at Jesus and we look at how he equips us uh, to do things that we don't feel that we necessarily uh, are able to do that. Uh, the principle in this one is that you can't correct what you're unwilling to confront. You can't correct what you're unwilling to confront and that small problems ignored grow into big problems later that you cannot avoid. Uh, and so the, the, uh, the avoiding leader. And then finally and lastly, you have the rescuing leader. The rescuing leader is the opposite of the avoiding leader. The, the rescuing leader is ready to help and is willing to help. The problem is that they help too much. And sometimes we call that person the enabler. You know, the one who uh, allows people to continue. We, we see this um, in the scripture. We see this in, in the, the woman, Abigail. Remember David's wife? And uh, she, David was not her first husband. Abigail was married to a man named Nabal. And the Bible tells us that he was a fool outrightly. And, uh, and, and so when David was a fugitive and David needed some resources, he was protecting, his men were protecting Nabal's uh, um, shepherds. And, and David thought, well, okay, I've been looking out for this guy, and now I need a little bit of food. And so David sent a messenger to Nabal, and he said, look, we've been watching your, um, your, your sheep and people, and we've been protecting them, and now we need a little kickback. And Nabal said, who is David, and who is the son of Jesse that I should help him? And he's like, why should I give my resources to someone who I don't know? There's many rebels these days that are running as fugitives, and it's none of my business. You go on your way. And, and David got the word back, and David thought, just started telling it up, going, okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. You know, if he's not going to, okay, if he's not going to pay me in food, he's going to pay me in blood. <laughs> and it was an error on David's part. He was overreacting to something that was uh, done to him in spite. Anybody can relate to that, or is David alone in it? Overreacting to something that was done to him in spite. You know, okay, he ain't going to feed me, I'll kill him. That's equal, you know. 
Well, Abigail, uh, she knew that what she was dealing with, and she had a fool on her hands, but Abigail was an avoiding, or I'm sorry, a rescuing leader, and she was very much a leader. She grabbed the reins of leadership in this instance, and she uh, took a whole bunch of food and a whole bunch of resources, and she herself went to David, and she said, look, this guy's an idiot. As his name is, Nabal means fool, so is he. He is a fool even to the naming of himself, and that's what he is. Here, calm down. You don't want this on your resume that you killed a man for not feeding you. Here's some food. You know, and David kind of wakes up in this thing. His, he was hangry. You know, he eats a Snickers bar. <laughs> he eats a Snickers bar and everything changes. And he says, thank you. You, you know, you, you spoke some perspective into my life and the whole thing. Well, 10 days later, uh, Nabal dies. I mean, you know, God takes care of the problem um, uh, and, and whatnot. But here's, here's the principle is that Abigail was a rescuing leader, and though she delivered Nabal from a problem that he was going to have, he ended up dying anyway uh, because he wasn't actually fixed and reformed. The, problem, the real problem was that he was a fool. You know, the problem wasn't that David needed food. The problem was Nabal was an idiot. You know, and she didn't fix the problem by addressing the need. And a rescuing leader wants to help and so they help, but they don't fix the problem. We see this often with family dynamics, don't we? Someone's constantly in need of uh, a financial bailouts. Someone's constantly in need of someone like standing in between them and the foolish things that they're saying to people. And the rescuing leader feels good about what they're doing. They're wired that way. They want to help. The problem is they're not helping. They're not fixing the problem because the person who needs help isn't really getting the help. The real solution is that leaders that care sometimes let people fail because they have to learn from their mistakes. And if they don't learn from the mistakes that they make, then they don't ultimately grow and they don't ultimately learn. Uh, again, it's mothers, isn't it? I mean, we all know that moms are, are typically the rescuers, the ones that step in. But I think it can happen to, to, to men too, is that we can uh, constantly be wanting, we like someone and so we help them. We, we pick up their slack, but sometimes in so doing, uh, we can actually be hurting them and not helping. Next week, we're going to talk about the fifth type of leader, and that is the good one. That's the developing leader. And we're going to see that in the person of Jesus, who is the absolute greatest example of how to lead, because that's what he did, and that's what he does, and that's what he's going to do in us as men, because he's called us to lead. God said of his people in the Old Testament that they were to be the head and not the tail. And that's what God says to you and me. He calls us to follow so that we can lead. He builds followers, I mean, he builds leaders, not followers. So our purpose in following is that we might learn to lead. And so we don't want to be the controlling leader. We don't want to be the critical leader. We don't want to be the avoiding leader. And we don't want to be the rescuing leader. But we'll learn from Jesus the opposite of all of those things and how it plays out uh, in everyday life next time.